This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, cowboys, and campion. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Jen Johans, a critic and three-time national award-winning writer at FilmIntuition.com and host of the podcast, Watch with Jen. And you've got me, Ingu Kank, the TV critic at The Washington Post, and the creator and host of the podcasts All About Almodovar and All About Campion, about the films of directors Pedro Almodovar and our director du jour, Jane Campion. When you hear the term movie western, the first images that likely spring to mind are of John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Gary Cooper, or Sam Elliott in Shit Kickers and Stetson sitting tall in the saddle in the middle of the southwestern desert. It's a distinctly macho genre on the surface that some say deals uncomfortably with the racism of quote-unquote cowboys and Indians plotlines where vengeance and male pride rules the day. However, when you look further... You just might be surprised by the complexities of the characters and themes you'll discover have been there all along, since its earliest days as one of Hollywood's most profitable genres. It's also the one most reflective of the history, politics, and mythos of America, and its place in the world. From High Noon to The Power of the Dog, today, we're taking the reins. While my relatives were big fans of Westerns, besides the movie Tombstone, which is a family favorite, as a feminist and liberal, it really wasn't a genre I appreciated until I devoted a course to it in my self-designed film studies baccalaureate program and began to see just how subversive, diverse, and richly seductive it was overall particularly for someone who loves analyzing sex, gender, psychology, and subtext. I'm also fascinated by the way it's evolved over the years, which we'll get into with The Power of the Dog. But how about you, Ingu? Why did you want to talk about this? This is a topic I can't stop thinking about because so many of the arthouse westerns that have come out in recent years, I think actually many inspired by the TV show Deadwood, have really tried to revitalize and update the western. And I think it partly does that by grappling with themes I feel like few other movie genres do. And of course, it's always great to have movies that try to do what other movies do not. I still love many of the tropes of the Western. I'm really interested in characters who, because of the freedoms of quote-unquote the West, are allowed to create their own worlds, and we get to watch them either take advantage of their creations or just as likely be subsumed by them. I'm also fascinated by what I think is the Western at its richest, which is people trying to decide, either as individuals or as a group, how much and what kind of violence is allowed in a society where the social contract has yet to be signed by everyone. And finally, I love movies where characters, male or female, are unburdened by social norms and thus are trying to figure out what they can or can't do with this freedom. And that actually describes several of the Westerns that we will discuss today. Coming up next, you'll hear Ingu and I each tackle a few Westerns we enjoy from the past and present that really showcase the genre's range and subtext when it comes to sex and gender.
Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The reality is that long before Dog or Brokeback Mountain, it's been there all along. Whether it's Montgomery Clift and John Ireland's characters fondling, shooting, and taking a liking to each other's guns in Howard Hawks' 1948 film Red River, or the violently sublimated lesbian desire between Joan Crawford and Mercedes McCambridge in Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar, screenwriters, directors, and actors of the past knew how to cloak these Western works in sexual, political, and moral ambiguity that only grows stronger and far more compelling on re- visits. Much like the musical, romantic comedy, film noir, or really any classic narrative paradigm, the Western is pretty easy to paint with one brush. I think this is maybe a good time to get into what exactly is the Western, right? I'm picturing cowboy hats, I'm picturing horses, I'm picturing these beautiful landscapes that of course will never ever be quite as gorgeous as when you see them in person, such as the magic of cinematography. What exactly is it? Like, what are the borders? Tell me, like, what the Western is. That is a really good question. A lot of people will debate it. Usually they say it's like 19th and 20th century, almost to kind of early 20th century, maybe when cars started to come in. So that era, usually the Western half of the United States, and these narratives that were very richly mythic, dealing with good and evil, They're kind of existential, usually. They'll deal with somebody needing to decide what they think is right or wrong, how they're living their life, and what they're willing to do to back it up. Do you think of it as a really nostalgic genre? Because I think, you know, you were talking earlier about how you would watch these movies with your grandparents. But something I've definitely noticed is that, you know, when these movies, I think when they were sort of like at its height in the 1950s, were sort of harking back to an earlier period, an earlier, more sort of socially free period, and also evoking these landscapes that probably started existing less and less. If we're thinking about sort of like Eisenhower's Highway Project, you know, also another post-war project, you are sort of seeing the disappearance of these natural landscapes. We're getting greater access to them through these highways, but also the construction of these highways are sort of like a marring of that landscape. I think in the 1950s, it was really fascinating because while there were some nostalgic Westerns, especially like Rio Bravo, which I'll get into in a little bit, there were also ones that were dealing with the aftermath of World War II and Joseph McCarthy 
and the blacklist, the Korean War, America's foreign policy, and also what we have done as a country with war and to the Native Americans and also to Mexico. There were some very dark, fascinating Westerns in the 50s. I love the ones by Anthony Mann. They don't really get mentioned as much as like the Hawks or the Ford Westerns, but there's some really fascinating stuff. What do you like about them? Well, there's one called Man of the West with Gary Cooper, who I love. He's in High Noon. It's kind of the dark side of Gary Cooper, maybe like what would have happened to his character after High Noon, where he has to ask himself what he's willing to look the other way on. Naked Spur is another one where Jimmy Stewart is playing a bounty killer or a bounty hunter who is going after people to kill them to bring them in for money. And it's a darker side of Jimmy Stewart than you would imagine. And I think Anthony Mann worked really interestingly with him in this era. So it's a way to get these sort of like good guy actors that from the classic Hollywood and get them to play these like darker figures. Do you think that's part of like why the genre gained so much popularity in that 1950s era? I think that's part of it. Also, that was when the rise of TV started to happen. So that's when widescreen and cinemascope and all of the beautiful cinematography really started to make a dent. I mean, it had been there all along in noir and other like Wizard of Oz, of course. But in the 50s, there was something about the grandeur of the searchers on the big screen versus like seeing it in your house. And I think that was part of the appeal. But also, if you're coming back from World War II, you might start questioning what you did over there or the experiences that you had. And you can see somebody play it out safely. You know, film is the best therapy, so to speak. So I guess if I'm sort of pulling at that thread, it's sort of about giving people, giving men, really, like an avenue through which to consider the role of violence in their lives and sort of think about like how that violence is contextualized in the moral universe. Yes. And they were also doing fascinating, very subtle things with the female characters. Anthony Mann, who I just had mentioned, did a film called The Furies with Barbara Stanwyck. Stanwyck was in a lot of these and she was great because uh, she's a ballsy actress. I mean, in The Furies, which is kind of a Greek tragedy or it has a little Shakespearean tinge to it with her relationship with her father. And it's very, you know, Electra almost, where she throws a scissors at somebody and she goes after a man for what she wants. She has a line like, I want to take the reins because I know where I'm going or I want to know where I'm going. Then he turns the tables on her and it's Barbara Sandwich. She's not going to sit by for that. I think that I personally have sort of been reluctant to really get too deep into this era of classic Hollywood, you know, the high noon Rio Bravo era, just because I feel like it's probably very grounded in this kind of like the white male comes in and like rescues the day. Maybe he's self-sacrificing. Maybe he's sort of uh, the guy who's like putting law and order into place. But I guess it feels very sort of dated by today's sort of like value systems. And so I guess what is your response to that? Is my stereotype have a ring of truth or am I just completely off? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. A lot of these movies, most of them are about the white male experience. But 
I think if you look a little bit deeper, there are some that I think you would be really surprised by and probably enjoy, like High Noon. There's a great character played by Katie Gerardo, who uh, is a Latina ex-businesswoman. She runs a saloon. She's sexually liberated. She's actually linked to all three of the male characters in the film. She knows them internally better than anyone. And she's really one of the richest characters. Actually, in an early draft of High Noon, the writer, Carl Foreman, who was facing down the blacklist, he'd been a Communist Party member, had used the word feminist in a speech that he gave to Grace Kelly. What year was that? That was 1952, actually. And he told his son that what he intended for High Noon was it not only to be about the McCarthy era and the blacklist, but also a gender study as well. And that's why the two women in that film, played by Grace Kelly and Katie Dorado, are so strong. So I understand like most of these Westerns probably wouldn't appeal to you. But, you know, if you look a little deeper, see some of these, I think it might be a good gateway. But I know the female characters got richer over time. And I know there were some neo-Westerns that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, I have really been pleasantly surprised in the last 10 years by how many I have really liked these. I think of them as neo-Westerns, you know, they take place in the 19th century, in the quote-unquote, the frontier. And I never thought of myself as someone who was remotely interested in men on horseback with guns, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, wait, these are really good movies. (laughs) And I think one of the reasons why I like them so much is that, like Power of the Dog, they are meant to challenge our comfort with the genre's tropes and sort of like make us rethink how we view people of those historical eras. And I think, not surprisingly, a lot of these neo-Westerns that I love, that you and I love, really explore less traditional gender roles. And also, they have people of color in active, non-demonized roles. I actually wanted to start with 2014's The Homesman, which is directed by Tommy Lee Jones, and also stars Tommy Lee Jones and Hilary Swank. As you can guess, uh, Hilary Swank is not literally the main character of this movie because it's called The Homesman. But it does start with this like very outwardly feminist premise. Uh, Hilary Swank plays Mary B., a solitary frontierswoman who takes it upon herself to deliver three mentally ill women who can no longer survive in the middle of nowhere to a city in Iowa where they can theoretically be better taken care of. And along the way, Mary B. encounters this cranky drunk. She actually cuts him down from like the noose that he's supposed to die on, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who joins her in her mission and actually grows to really admire her. But what I really like about The Homesman is that Tommy Lee Jones' character is not sort of like an audience surrogate. Uh, Mary B. is not a superwoman. It's actually an exploration of you know, the toll taken by the self-sufficiency, which is, of course, a value that we so associate with the Western. Uh, There's a really rich history of feminist characters in Westerns, most notably, as you mentioned, Johnny Guitar, in which Joan Crawford plays a saloon owner. And I'm not trying to girl boss the Western, but I do feel like the character of Mary B is sort of this like subversion of a subversion, where once we have established that this feminist character, this feminist figure, 
can't exist, then it's sort of about the dedication, but also the exhaustion of being like a one-woman survivalist team. Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating film. It's so important in taking a look at the difficulties faced by women in the West. I can't imagine growing up in that era uh, and the expectations of their role as a wife and a mother. I don't love it as much as you do. I think it's probably just where I'm coming from, from personal experience. I'm a woman who technically have had like a million back surgeries, so I'm physically technically disabled. So I have some issues with its depictions of emotional disabilities, but I really responded to the idea of the film and its remarkable performances, especially those leads. But it's one where it feels like in trying to drive the misery home, it sort of turned in at least in my eyes, into a bit of like performative faux feminist torture porn, which I don't love. So I love that they're bringing in female stories. But at the same time, you think maybe they're going a little overboard. And I also felt like it fell back on gender tropes by making it essentially really all about the homesmen. I think what I really like about the homesmen is just that ultimately, this is a bit of a spoiler, she kind of crumbles under the weight of having to be that self-sufficient. It just felt human. I think one of the things that these neo-Westerns really get at is exploring the sort of like underside of all of that stoic masculinity or stoic independence. We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Ingu and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist?, where today we'll be debating whether pianos, a centerpiece of both Jane Campion's The Piano and The Power of the Dog, are feminist. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
This brings us to our main focus today on my favorite film of last year, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, which raises so many valid questions about gender roles and expectations of masculinity as embodied by three very different men, played by Cody Smith McPhee, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Jesse Plemons within the confines of the Western. And we are going to get into some spoilers here, but you will probably... As with literally any movie discussion, get more out of our conversation if you have seen the movie, which you absolutely should because it is fantastic. Uh, So Jen, I have seen so many descriptions of The Power of the Dog as being about quote unquote toxic masculinity, which is like on the one hand true and on the other hand, I think wildly insufficient as a summary of the movie, which I would say is sort of a feminist movie about men. So let's talk about like this toxic masculinity part first. I think we're conditioned by the genre to really respond to the alpha show of power when we first see Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, he's your classic swinging dick, essentially. (laughs) He's got that voice. He's walking a certain way. He's hassling Cody Smith McPhee, who's an effeminate paper flower maker, working with his mom. The scene, uh, Megan Abbott actually brought up a really good point. She watched my favorite Western recently and one of hers, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And there's this great scene with Lee Marvin, who in that movie is also sexually insecure. He uses a whip. Uh, hassling uh, Jimmy Stewart, who is being effeminate in, in a restaurant. And Megan Abbott was saying, you know, it's very obvious that possibly Campion and Cumberbatch watched the scene because early on you do get a little vibe off of Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I wonder what little lady made these. <laughs> Actually, I did, sir. My mother was a florist, so I made them to look like the ones in our garden. Oh, well, do pardon me. They're just as real as possible. Mm. Mm. Ah, now, gentlemen, look, see, that's what you do with the cloth. It's really just for wine drips. Oh, got that, boys. Only for the drip. It's such a fascinating movie. I think what's great about the Western is you think of it as these wide open spaces where you can be who you are, but it becomes super claustrophobic. Like when we see Kirsten Dunst arrive at this house, this mansion, essentially, one of the mansions that her son had cut a picture out of in the magazine at the beginning and like showed her when she gets there it's dark it's foreboding you have benedict cumberbatch like almost like a bad guy in a movie which he is under the light there to greet her and correct her for calling him brother yeah it's almost like this sort of like gothic element where the only thing she has done quote-unquote wrong is like marry this guy who's so desperate to marry her uh played by kirsten dunst's real life husband or real life partner jesse plemons and she gets there and it's almost it's not quite Rebecca, but it sort of has this element of like this woman comes, marries into this very wealthy family. And then basically her life turns into a shit show. 
It does. It's sort of yellow wallpaper or there's a scene where she's wearing um, a pink floral dress and it basically matches her bedroom wallpaper and she's already disappearing into this landscape. Another really important part of that is that she starts to drink in a way that she never had before. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. You brought up the toxic masculinity. One thing I love about Campion is she never wastes a moment. When I was talking to my friend Walter Cha about this movie, he was bringing up how everything that you need to know is right in the beginning. That opening voiceover that Cody Smith McPhee, like, what kind of man would I be if I didn't rescue or save my mother? And then one of the early lines, again, Ingu warned you for spoilers, uh, you have Benedict Cumberbatch talking about anthrax, and all of that is going to come back. And so I saw that again yesterday when I revisited the piano for this discussion. She just really doesn't waste anything. She subtly puts in these clues, and it's very rich on revisits. I think what I really like about the sort of toxic masculinity aspect of this movie is that it is so very much about... Even though theoretically Phil, um, who is who we find out midway through the movie, is a closeted gay man, theoretically has all of the space to be himself and sort of has created this like small little world in his ranch or close to his ranch where, you know, he keeps escape pornography, where he sort of masturbates with a scarf that used to be owned by his dead lover. Even though he has all of that, so much of his life is really revolved around this performance of heterosexuality and not just heterosexuality, but sort of this like overcompensating hypermasculinity. I think one of the things that really bothered me when I initially watched The Power of the Dog is that Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons, who of course look nothing alike, are supposed to play brothers. And also they have very different accents. And then I think as you learn more about Phil, it becomes more obvious. Phil, who has a classics degree from Yale, that he probably just sort of like adopted this very working class pantomime of heterosexuality as part of like his being in the closet, you know, when he's making fun of Kirsten Dunst's inability to play the piano, he calls it a panano. Like Phil is absolutely capable of saying the word piano, but he is so caught up in sort of this thing. And I think like what really is poignant about the movie is you can see that it's creating so much loneliness both within himself and within other people. Obviously, Phil is someone who is constantly surrounded by these cowhands, really casual homoeroticism. There's a really beautiful scene that I'm sure Sam Elliott hated where a bunch of the cowhands are shirtless or by a riverbank. They're just like literally lounging about with literally wearing only like their cowboy hats like over their private areas and yet at the same time he can't actually participate in any of that because of his sexuality and so he goes to be alone and because he is so keeping himself apart by being in the closet his brother who he lives with and who he weirdly sort of shares a bed with even though they live in a mansion Like, his brother is desperately lonely, and of course, like, his brother is going to run away and marry 
a woman behind Phil's back because like this one man's loneliness is sort of like radiating outward. And I think it's sort of this like really remarkable commentary on our romanticization of solitude and isolation and self-sufficiency with the Western, where again, it just sort of brings back this human element of, yeah, like all of this stuff like looks really cool, but like these people were desperately unhappy. But talking about toxic masculinity and these roles, it is really sad when you get to see who Phil really is. Like it comes out late that he studied classics and he was very intellectual and you get a sense that he was born in this environment. He is playing a part and it's only when, like when he hears the sound of them making love next door and then he goes and there's this ritual that he does with the saddle and it's very erotic. Bronco Henry, his like ex-lover saddle. Yes, Bronco Henry. And when he's with the scarf, you get a sense of this great love that he had and lost, or maybe this unrequited, or we're not sure exactly what happened. And it is pretty heartbreaking. It's fascinating. Campion does this a lot in her movies, uh, the torture, deconstruction. So The Power of the Dog was shot in New Zealand, again, to the horror of Sam Elliott, even though many Westerns have been shot not in the U.S. You know, Jane Campion as a director from New Zealand has often shot in New Zealand, really took advantage of that, of like those really lush landscapes, even before Peter Jackson did. And I think what's really notable about the scenery here is that it is like simultaneously really lush and yet sort of empty. You just get these like really big expanses of dryness and brownness. And it really felt to me like it was a reflection of Phil's inner life in that, you know, there's a sort of like grandeur to it. And yet at the same time, all you can really feel is how small you feel against that landscape. It's alien and it's foreign because in no way does that look like what Montana looks like. Anyone who's driven through the United States knows it's not, but it almost winds up adding this fairy tale or as you mentioned, gothic quality to the film that does so much more than dialogue could in exuding who these people are. One of my favorite moments in the film is when Plemons and Dunst are driving to the home for the first time and they stop and they dance in the middle of nowhere. And he gets so emotional that he needs to stop and walk away and say how good it is not to be alone anymore. And you realize, I mean, romantically alone, of course, but just how even with his brother, these are two people who together couldn't be more different or alone. Four, two, three, five, two. What is it, George? I just want to say how nice it is not to be alone. So much of Campion's filmography is about wrestling for power, usually between a man and a woman. I don't think we've mentioned yet that Jane Campion, who has 
a great deal of first woman director accolades to her name. This is her very first movie in her, I think, something like 30-year career where she has a male protagonist. And what I thought was really interesting about this movie is that instead of her sort of like usual preoccupations with men and women dueling each other for power or for equality. This is really about these two very different styles of masculinity being for power. On the one hand, you have sort of like the obvious macho-ness of Benedict Cumberbatch's character, who is almost camp in how masculine he is. There's like literally a scene where Cumberbatch's character walks up to a bull and then sort of castrates it barehanded with just a knife. That's a little Freudian. Yes. Apparently, uh, Cumberbatch went to bull castration school. But the point um, I'm trying to get at is that Bill is so caught up in this game of like trying to prove that he's not gay by trying to prove that he is like the most masculine man who has ever lived other than of course his idol Bronco Henry uh that he doesn't see the power that you can have from just sort of being this very effeminate very like openly queer coded man and he never sees his coming up and coming it never sort of like occurs to him that Anyone who is not sort of caught up in this hypermasculinity can also have any sort of agency or any sort of cunning or any sort of plans outside of basically worshipping that kind of masculinity. These are their own stereotypes of what being straight and gay should be like, or being a cowboy. Exactly. Gene Hackman, I believe had one of my favorite quotes about, you know, the power is being able to tap into your feminine side. And that's something that Phil absolutely can't do. I agree with you that this is, you know, her first overt film with a male protagonist. But one of the things I love most about Jane Campion is she gets labeled a feminist filmmaker who makes movies about women, but usually they're co-leads. The men are just as important or their stories rank side by side as men and women are equal. And I love that. It's very feminist. Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. So, Ingu, what are you loving right now? So, for our podcast, All About Campion, where we covered all of Jane Campion's movies, one really stood out for me as like a movie that I had never really given two thoughts to. And now I'm sort of like, this is the Campion movie that everyone needs to see after The Power of the Dog and The Piano, which is, holy smoke, it is the movie that Campion made as I think her second follow-up to The Piano. Um, So it's from the mid-90s. It stars Kate Winslet, I think like right after Titanic, and also Harvey Keitel, who played the gentleman caller in The Piano. And what I love about this movie, which is sort of about this 19-year-old girl from suburban Australia who goes to India, has an awakening, and then decides she's going to marry this guru and, like, really dedicate her life to enlightenment. Her parents get really freaked out, and they call over this American cult deprogrammer 
played by Kaitel, who sort of like goes in and is trying to deprogram this girl, except she is much smarter than him. And I don't think it's ever really clear whether her dedication to finding enlightenment is real or not, whether this is sort of like a teenage passing fancy or not. I think that stuff is like really richly ambivalent, but it sort of becomes this like two-person led movie, this like battle of wills. It is truly Jean Campion in sort of like her least conventional mode. And I think that mode of her sort of is a bit of a hit or miss, but this one is definitely a hit. It really is. Everyone always talks about In the Cut. You know, that's a terrific film, but it's kind of already been reclaimed. Holy Smoke is the one I can't stop thinking about. It is so good. For me, I would have to recommend uh, the films of Terrence Malick and Vim Vendors. I was revisiting a handful of Malicks in particular this month because I'm working on a piece on Elias Katea. So I rewatched The Thin Red Line. And then I was also doing an episode of Watch with Jen with Bilga Iberi on Colin Farrell. So I revisited The New World and then Days of Heaven just for fun. And there's something so hypnotic and lush. And that goes hand in hand with the Western and the wide open spaces and the desire to get away and really evaluate your life and what's important that I love so much. And I think it's very poetic. Same with Vendors. I rewatched Paris, Texas again which is one of my favorites. So I'm always seeking creative inspiration. And I felt like those movies really lent themselves to this discussion as well. So it was a happy accident. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director with the wonderful June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. And The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topics, same time and place. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.